Welcome to the White House Farm Murders podcast, an investigative podcast that attempts to reconsider the evidence, uncover the hidden truths and separate the facts from fiction. In this podcast, years in the making, packed full of exclusive interviews, we will reconsider the case against Jeremy Bamber and attempt to establish if his guilt has really been proven beyond all reasonable doubt. For obvious reasons, this podcast will contain topics of a distressing nature, and listener discretion is advised. In particular, this podcast will contain references to mental health, murder, and miscarriage. While certain episodes will feature more discussions on those topics than others, they are consistent themes throughout. This might not be the podcast for you if any of those topics are triggering. There's a tendency in true crime for the victims of a tragedy to be somewhat forgotten or sidelined, with our fascination with the crime itself tending to take centre stage. As a result, it is the suspect with whom we become familiar, learning everything that we can about them, often wanting to understand the hows and whys of why they did it. Oftentimes, this misfocus of attention means that the victims get lost in the story, and we learn more about the perpetrators than we do about the people whose lives have been lost. You've all heard of Ted Bundy, but how many of you can name any of his victims? And what about the five known victims of Jack the Ripper? What were they called? Or the most murderers? Out of the five, how many of them can you name? And in many ways, this case is no different. After all, it's Jeremy Bamber who is central to this case, And for obvious reasons, he's remained that way even in the decades past his alleged crime. The victims are often an afterthought, when in reality, it's they who should be remembered. Over recent years, there has been a move towards more victim-focused true crime. With Caroline Lee's Somebody's Mother, Somebody's Daughter, and Halle Rubenhold's The Five perfect examples of this shift. And yet some crimes are yet to benefit from this kind of revision. Jeremy, his supporters, his defence and his campaign team would of course argue that Jeremy himself falls into this category, that he too is a victim of the entire tragedy. And if someday proven innocent, then that is undoubtedly true. But for now, in this episode, we are going to deal with the five known victims, those who lost their lives on that fateful August night. So sidestepping his protestations and the fact that he's often central to this case. Today, in this episode, we're going to change the narrative. I want to return the focus to the known and confirmed victims, the five members of the family who lost everything that night, and to spend just a second retelling their stories. It's easy to think of this case as having started in 1985, the year of the murders, but that is of course not true. And the story of this case goes back much, much further. And while the Bamba Kafal story is the centre of this podcast, related tragedies also deserve their own place in history. Because prior to the murders, there was a spate of separate tragedies at White House Farm. And while these were loosely mentioned in the initial and original episodes, they also warrant their own place here. White House Farm is a curious and difficult building to describe, one that is set back from the main roads while also being nearer to one than you'd imagine. It's haunting regardless of what's happened there 
and has that traditional British farmhouse aesthetic. It's huge and beautiful, and under the care of the Bamba family, it was a thriving and successful business. The farm itself is in the heart of the Essex countryside, on a narrow dirt road called Pages Lane. The name originating from its earlier inhabitants, the Page family, a strange and unrelated coincidence. It has no direct connection to me, also a page. The tragedy started in 1887, when Orbel Page was found dead less than a mile from the poverty. In circumstances that will always hold more significance than they ever could at the time, he was recorded as having been found with a rifle on his chest, a piece of string connecting the trigger to his right foot. At the time, the tragedy was reported in the Essex Standard, with the following report having been published on the 1st of October 1887. Quick side note, while I will read the article, I have substituted one outdated phrase for a more appropriate one. The article records, under the headline, Suicide of Mr. Orbel Page at Tolls Hunt Darcy. Between 6 and 7 o'clock on Wednesday evening, it was reported that Mr. Orbel Page, who had resided in the parish of Tolls Hunt Darcy for many years and was well known, had taken his own life. The report turned out to be only too true. The deceased, it appears, was under notice to leave his house on the 29th, and as he had no other home to go to, it seems to have preyed upon his mind. He was about the village as usual during the day, and retired as was supposed to rest. He had, however, secured his gun, and by means of string fastened to his foot, he shot himself through the head. On Thursday, the coroner, Mr J. Harrison Jr., held an inquest on the body. Mr Hunt, being foreman of the jury, Susan Ludgater, wife of Harry Ludgater of Tolson Darcy, said deceased, who was 78 years of age, occupied rooms in their home. At about half past six o'clock on Wednesday evening, she saw him going upstairs and bade him good night. It was his usual time for going to bed. She heard him go into his bedroom and also into the back room. She heard him open the window and close the door. She then heard it click like the hammer of a gun being raised and then followed the report of a gun. She was very frightened and ran to W.M. French next door, as she thought the deceased had shot himself. French went upstairs and found that it was so. Deceased had lived there 42 years. Witness and her husband had lived there about nine months. Deceased did not work, but lived on his friends. Witness had never heard him threaten to take his life, but during the week he had told her that he hoped to be in the churchyard by Sunday. She did not think that much of it at the time. Deceased was always of a cheerful disposition. He had no furniture and lived a curious existence. On Wednesday afternoon, he made presents to witnesses' children. He received notice to quit during the spring. The jury returned a verdict of temporary insanity. The farm itself was owned by Benjamin Page, who'd inherited the farm some years prior to Orbel's death in 1864, he too had suffered from bouts of depression, and on the 29th of December 1891, he attempted to end his own life. Said to have consumed poison, Benjamin was discovered by his daughter, and while he was unwell and vomiting, he was found to be conscious. Next to his body was a spoon and a bottle of undisclosed poison. The family called the doctor, who inquired as to whether or not the family had a history of madness. 
Despite the best efforts of those involved, his body had already been affected, and in January 1892, Benjamin Page died. Again, a news article records this tragic death. Mr. Benjamin Page of the White House farm Tolls Hunt Darcy died on Tuesday evening under the most painful circumstances. Mr. Page, who is an ardent sportsman, had a shooting party last Monday week and was then in his usual health. But on the Tuesday night, he drank a quantity of poison which, although it did not immediately kill him, left him little hopes of recovery. He expired on Tuesday night. The deceased has held the office of surveyor for the parish for a number of years. He was also a very energetic local secretary of the Farmers Benevolent Society. He was 57 years of age. The inquest was held on Thursday by Mr. Coroner Harrison. Miss Florence Page said she discovered her father in great pain and vomiting. A glass and spoon were close by. She surmised that he had taken poison as he had suffered from fits of depression and had threatened suicide. He complained most in stormy weather. John Perry disclosed that the deceased said to him, I've taken it, John. Dr. James said he found that the glass referred to contained corrosive sublimate. Miss Page said that her father kept the poison in his desk and used it for cattle. A verdict was returned to the effect that the deceased died from exhaustion, consequent upon taking poison while of unsound mind. Upon the death of Benjamin Page, the farm was left to Elizabeth, Benjamin's widow, who managed the farm with the support of her two sons for several years, one of whom was called Frank Page. And for a short while, tragedy seemed to have left the property. It's at this point in time that our stories begin to merge, because in 1937, an already successful farm manager and landowner, who also happened to be June Bamba's father, Leslie Speakman, came into the picture. At this point, Leslie Speakman assisted Frank Page in the co-management of White House Farm. In 1920, having already had one daughter named Pamela, Leslie and his wife Mabel were expecting their second child, a little girl to be named June. Taking the story back ever so slightly, the Speakmans were a wealthy, hard-working and successful family, with both Mabel and Leslie having themselves come from farming legacies. But at the time the two children were born, they were living in Vaulty Manor, a beautiful manor house set opposite what would eventually become the Osea Caravan Park. The manor still exists to this day, but is now a conference and wedding venue, but at the time of its farming operation, it was a hugely successful venture. Alongside their two biological daughters, Mabel and Leslie also unofficially adopted two of their nieces, following the death of Mabel's sister-in-law. The two girls, known as Binky and Betty, were also raised on the farm. The four girls seemed to enjoy their childhood, and it's said that they greatly contributed to the running of the farm. In 1933, Mabel started her own business, offering land opposite Vaulty as camping space for those looking for a getaway. It was an idea to which she dedicated a large amount of time, with the results speaking for themselves. The little camping field that Mabel started was eventually to become Osea Caravan Park. While it would eventually be the site of Jeremy Bamba's break-in, it was also hugely successful. At the time of scripting this episode, the site remains within the family, via Anne Eaton's daughter. When June Speakman finished her education at Malden Grammar School, she joined the Fire Guard, 
but in 1940 was moved to the War Office in London, initially joining as a typist before being recommended for the FANY, the First Aid Nursing Yemenry in 1940. For those unsure, it was an organisation affiliated with the Special Operations Executive. The SOE trained its potential agents in the arts of resistance and sabotage, with agents then being shipped across the world during the Second World War. It was made up of 10,000 men and 3,000 women. For those of you interested in World War II or who want to know more about the organisation, you should give the movie a call to spy a watch, as the SOE is the basis for that film's plotline. For those of you who haven't yet seen the movie, the story follows a group of female agents who are trained and sent over to Europe to aid in specific sabotage efforts and to help better connect resistance efforts. And it was this organisation to which June Speakman eventually worked in 1940. In her book, The Murders at White House Farm, Caroline Lee perfectly outlined the skill set which suited June to these duties. Quote, June's qualifications were typing, shorthand, French, first aid and home nursing. Her interests were swimming, tennis and reading. In November 1944, June was hired as a wireless operator and in January 1945, following her training, she was asked to sign the Official Secrets Act. What followed was a series of training modules aimed at readying June for duty, with essential lessons including parachute jumping and how to be inconspicuous. While June is best known in this case for her deeply religious beliefs, it's clear that she was a brave and accomplished young woman, one who contributed to the war effort in a way that we might never fully understand or appreciate. Shortly after, in 1945, the war ended, and over the next few years, armed personnel and others working in the war effort were sent home and decommissioned. The post-war years dominated by an intention to recover, whether that be families, cities, countries and so on. In January 1947, with the war fading slowly into memory, June's sister Pamela married Robert Boutflower, also from a farming legacy. The couple settled in Carbonals, one of the farms managed by Leslie Speakman, and they went on to have their son, David. They eventually had a second child, Anne, both of whom would eventually become key names in the case against Jeremy Bamber. In 1948, Robert Belfar asked his father to supply him with some extra labourers, requesting that a couple of his students offer a helping hand. As the principal of the Royal Agricultural College, Robert Balfour's father was aware which students were best suited to the job. He agreed to the request, and one of the students requested was Neville Bamber, a handsome, tall and lean young man who was said to have set the local girls' hearts racing. Ralph Neville Bamber was born in 1924 and was the youngest of the three Bamber children. But despite having been christened Ralph, it was familial tradition for all Bamber children to go by their middle name, and so Ralph Neville Bamber was only ever called Neville. The children saw very little of their parents, with their father and mother both away for work, but it was said to have been a mostly happy childhood. Similarly to what would happen with Jeremy, in 1934 Neville Bamber was sent to Christ's Hospital School in Horsham, Sussex, and was said to have been a promising and successful student. In fact, it was one of the reasons why Neville and June eventually sent Jeremy to boarding school, 
According to those close to Neville, the boarding school experience had transformed his life, and as far as he was concerned, he wanted his children to have the same experience. In 1940, Neville decided to join the RAF, and passed his exams with flying colours, eventually being called up in 1941. At the time, he was given the title Temporary Sergeant Pilot, flying with Army Support, Squadrons 13 and 55. During the Allied invasion of French North Africa, Operation Torch, which began in November 1942, Caroline Lee recounts how Neville Bamba was actually shot down. Quote, One source states that his mosquito crashed and he spent weeks in hospital with his back encased in plaster, while another claims he was out of action for two years with spinal injuries. His service records show that on the 8th of June 1943, he was transferred to the Emergency Medical Services Hospital in Lambert's Bay, a small fishing town in Western Cape, province of South Africa. On the 16th of August 1943, he returned to England. It took months of therapy and recuperation, but in November 1944, Neville was called up for a second time. This time he was posted in Jerusalem, followed by Egypt, before returning to England. In 1947, his duties were also officially ended. Having joined the Royal Agricultural College, Neville was soon chosen for the Speakman Farm by Professor Boutflower, and having built a great relationship with Pamela and Robert, he quickly found himself inside of their social circles eventually meeting and courting Pamela's sister, June. June and Neville fell in love through their shared interest in tennis, having been doubles partners on a few occasions, and began their relationship officially in 1948. David Boutflower commented in a past interview that the couple couldn't have been any more different from each other, and yet it seemed to be a marriage made in heaven. Neville was charismatic. He had a tremendous sense of humour. I can always, I can always remember, Neville loved a party. June, um, on the other hand, she was a much quieter person, shy, and um, the two of them were a perfect pair. It was clear that things were serious between them, and they planned for their future, deciding that they would marry as soon as Neville had graduated from college, and did so, albeit delayed slightly due to a family bereavement. In 1949, the couple married in St. Peter's Church, Goldhanger, and on the 3rd of September 1949, Ralph Neville Bamber and June Speakman officially became the Bambers. Mr and Mrs Bamber were regarded as the squires of the village, very well respected. Like, you would look up to your parents, village people looked up to Mr and Mrs Bamber. Those who knew Neville, whether personally or professionally, recounted him as being a fair and kind man, the kind of person who looked after those close to him and sought to be a reasonable and moderate force within all environments. With Colin Caffell, despite his negative perception of June, offering many a kind word about Neville in his book. Quote, My first impressions of Neville Bamber were ones I maintain to this day. He was the kind of man for whom one had instant respect and affection. At six foot four inches, he was a big man in every sense of the word, almost aristocratic. Colin also offered comments on June. Quote, Mrs. Bamba, on the other hand, was a quiet, nice-looking lady with a pleasant disposition, a woman who, although very active within the community, preferred to take a backseat role to her husband's activities. But others suffered the consequences, although many would not consider it excessive over the years, June had begun to preach her committed beliefs to all and sundry, especially her own family. 
I suspect it was a major contributing factor in not only Bam's tragic illness, but her own earlier breakdown. Like my own family, anger and feelings were never openly expressed by Neville and June, with the inevitable result that the children were like a box of firecrackers waiting to explode at the slightest provocation. While Neville and June were at the very start of their journey together, the Bambas and White House Farm were soon to become intrinsically linked. But before that could happen, another tragedy was to strike, both worlds finally and permanently colliding. By 1950, Elizabeth Page had passed away, with her sons inheriting and running the farm at White House. In mid-1950, Elizabeth's son, Frank Page, was to suffer his own breakdown, a situation that was confounded by the eventual death of his brother just a few weeks later. A notable and respected member of the community, Frank Page's obituary is lengthy and poignant, listing all those who attended the funeral, including P. Speakman, June's sister. The obituary, minus the funeral names, reads as follows. Mr. Hugh Page, auctioneer and farmer, formerly of the Grange, Witham, and later of Sanford Road, Chelmsford, where he lived in retirement, died at the home of his daughter, Mrs. H. B. May, of Salcote Hall, Haybridge, on Saturday. Mr. Page was born at the White House farm at Tolshunt Darcy, now the residence of his brother, Mr. Frank Page, a retired farmer. Mr. Page was articled to Messrs. Sanford and Son, Colchester, and started a business on his own at Whitham in 1905. Over years later, he became secretary and auctioneer at Whitham Stock and Sale and Cattle Market, a position he held until he retired in 1946. The following year, he also retired from farming, having farmed at Elm and Half Heights with them for a quarter of a century. He was a keen Freemason, a past Grand Master of the Easterford Lodge, Clevedon, and founding member of the Manor of Newland Lodge with them. His only son, Kenneth, died in South Africa in 1934. Mrs. Page, who before her marriage resided in Little Topham Hall, died in 1944. Following his brother's death, Frank confided in his sister, advising her that he was struggling with his grief and his own mental health problems, a comment that held further meaning when, in November 1950, things were to come to a head. Waking up in the early hours of the 10th of November, Minnie, Frank's sister, noticed that he was missing from bed. A search ensued and eventually his body was found in the farmyard's water tank. The tractor wheels having been found nearby cleared evidence that they'd been used to help him get inside. An autopsy found no signs of drowning, but did find that Frank Page had heart disease and it was this which was registered as his cause of death, the assumption being that he died from the shock of the cold water. And so, by 1950, and with both Frank and Hugh Page having recently passed away, Whitehouse Farm officially needed a new tenant, and having been married for a year, June and Neville posed the perfect solution. Leslie Speakman contacted the Henry Smith trustees, the organisation that owned the farm, and suggested that Neville and June should be the next tenants. The Henry Smith Trust was first established in 1628, based on the will of the namesake, who was a moneylender and businessman. In his will, he outlined the charity that he wished to be created, also outlining the first beneficiaries. He stated that English sailors who'd suffered at the hands of Turkish pirates were to be the first to benefit. 
The website states that the Trust's goal now is to continue with that endeavour. It is the largest grant-giving charity within the country, and in 2020 alone it provided over £39 million. There seems to be little information on the exact manner in which White House Farm operates, but presumably it helps to generate a consistent income for the charity. But if you search for Henry Smith Trust White House Farm, you do get a link to the registered charity information. It reads, Henry Smith Charity, Tolls Hunt Darcy. Activity to manage property vested in it being White House Farm in the parish of Tolls Hunt Darcy. To distribute residue after expenses of management into 140 equal parts between the ancient parishes of Suffolk, Essex, Hartford, Chester and Sussex. In 1951, Neville and June Bamber moved into the property, and while the lane on which the property sits is still named after the aforementioned Page family, from 1952 on, the house was to become forever linked to the Bambers. The slow march towards the tragedy for which the farm is ultimately known had already begun. The first bout of sadness for the Bambers came almost immediately, as they found themselves struggling to conceive naturally. It was a trauma and tragedy that had a profound impact on June, and in 1955 she was hospitalised for a breakdown. Having received treatment at a private hospital, she did eventually return home, but not before spending three months living outside of the property. The decision was somewhat made for them a few years later, when June had a medical procedure which made it impossible for her to then conceive, and so eight years after their marriage in 1957, June and Neville made the decision to adopt. Having approached the Church of England's Children's Society, the couple were fast approved, that being despite June's earlier mental health concerns. The first child to come along was of course Sheila, who was born in 1957 and was placed up for adoption aged three months old. Her mother was the unmarried daughter of a chaplain to the Archbishop of Canterbury and it was the chaplain's belief that it would be in the best interests of everyone if Sheila was moved on to a new home. The Bambas were selected, and on the 6th of February 1958, Sheila was officially adopted into the Bamba family. It wasn't long after this date that June was once again admitted for private mental health care, and in 1958 she was hospitalised once again. This time she attended St Andrew's Hospital in Northampton, the same hospital that Sheila would later attend. In her book, Caroline Lee recounts this episode in well-researched detail outlining that while the records remained sealed, the psychiatrist Dr Hugh Cameron Ferguson was able to offer some insight. Quote, June came under his care in 1982 and he learned that she had been treated there in the 1950s. I don't know if her depression following Sheila's adoption took the form of the classical lowering of mood or if it was mixed up with her strong religious beliefs. I suspect that it was somewhat religious, disturbed thoughts as well as disturbed feelings. That's the difference between clinical depression and psychotic depression. There's a breaking with reality. During her stint in hospital, June was eventually subjected to letter shock therapy and it's said that she received this on at least six occasions. Electroconvulsive therapy or electric shock therapy as it is colloquially known is a procedure in which small charges of electrics are passed through the brain of those suffering from mental health concerns. The aim of the procedure is to trigger a brief seizure, with the goal being to create a chemical change within the brain to aid those with mental health symptoms. 
For those who are interested in classic movies, you might best understand the procedure via a reference to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, because it's the procedure that Jack Nicholson eventually receives. A few years after June's successful treatment in 1961, the couple decided that it was time to add a second child to their household. And that very same year, Jeremy Bamba was born. Despite having been hospitalised on two occasions for serious mental health concerns, with both seeming to have been triggered by her want for children or the adoption process, the Church of England's Children's Society once again approved the Bamba's application. Jeremy Paul Marsham was born on the 13th of January 1961, but was quickly placed up for adoption, finding himself in the custody of the Children's Society. Just six weeks later, in July of 1961, Jeremy Marsden was welcomed into the Bamba family and was eventually given the name by which we all know him now, Jeremy Neville Bamba. During the police investigation into the murders, Jeremy refused them access to his adoption records, but the truth was eventually uncovered. His mother was the unmarried daughter of a vicar, Juliet Wheeler, while his father was a married former army sergeant who, at the time, worked at Buckingham Palace. It has since been established that just 18 months after Jeremy had been placed up for adoption, Leslie Marsham divorced his first wife and remarried Jeremy's mother. They later had children together, keeping in touch with the Bambas for several years after the adoption, and yet they never sought Jeremy and yet they never sought contact with Jeremy himself. Whether or not they thought about Jeremy a lot in those years after is impossible to establish. But they were unable to avoid thinking about him altogether and eventually they would find out what happened to him when newspapers tracked Jeremy's biological parents down. It's since been stated that the Marshams had no idea about who their son had become but I personally find this very difficult to believe. After all, they were in touch with the Bambas and the White House farm murders was a huge story in the 1980s gaining all kinds of national traction Surely they would have at the very least recognised the name of the family to whom their son was adopted. Into whom their son was adopted. And surely they'd have put two and two together. In the years since, Major Marston has occasionally spoken out about his firstborn son. In an interview with the Sunday Mirror in 2004, he stated that he wanted nothing to do with Jeremy and that he fully supported the whole life sentence. He branded him a psychopath and stated that neither he nor Juliet ever wanted any kind of contact with him. It's been suggested that the fact that the children were adopted was common knowledge within the farm and that both Jeremy and Sheila were made aware of this detail from a young age. But we'll never really understand the role, if any, this or the mere fact of their adoption played into ultimately what happened. What is clear is that while from the outside the farm appeared idyllic, Inside, issues and tensions were slowly bubbling away. The children were said to have had everything they wanted, with Roland Parchter, Anthony and Jacqueline's half-brother, even having referred to the children as spoilt, an allegation that was also echoed by other close family members. What is clear is that Jeremy Bamber seemed to be a relatively unaffected child, with June's friend Agnes Lowe telling Caroline Lee that During the earlier years of the children, Sheila was the awkward one, Jeremy was a very pleasant and polite child. The family called him Jem, a nickname that even Julie uses in her police statements, and it's said that Jeremy idolised his father during his childhood. On the other hand, Sheila was said to have had quite a temper, 
But also being sensitive, she tended to feel guilty on the occasions when her temper did get the better of her. Again, Caroline Lee records the following of Sheila, quote, Friends recall her as an affectionate, spontaneous little girl who loved animals. She was dreamy and imaginative, strong-willed, yet easily intimidated. Her aunt Pamela described her as very loving, and throughout her life, Sheila was a tactile person, generous with hugs and habitually touching the arm of the person to whom she was chatting. Over the past decade, there has been a huge increase into studies related to relationships and psychology, with it now being commonly held belief that we all have a language of love, a manner in which we prefer to both give and receive demonstrations of love. Of these, there are said to be five, with physical touch being one of the many languages. From what we know about Sheila, it seems that this was one of hers, with Colin also echoing how hard the Bamba's lack of expression had been for her with it being recorded that she was hurt with their lack of physical expression. Clearly, it was something Sheila valued. There's something about the way Sheila is described that really resonates with me. She sounds like the kind of person who I'd always look forward to catching up with. The kind of person you inquire after in the planning of a family event, full of life and frolic, fun and loving. Yet it was this tactile nature and her want to enjoy life to the fullest, which eventually caused huge tension within the Bamba family. For those who've studied this case and reinvestigated it since, much has been made of June's own mental health struggles, but particularly her staunch religious beliefs. Both Jeremy and Sheila would eventually be at a disagreement with their parents over these standards, with Sheila tending to bear the brunt of June's upset. June was a very traditional and religious person, with her high biblical moral beliefs often jarring with 1980s punk rock culture. For whatever reason, women often tend to bear the brunt of religious restrictions, with women around the world under various customs and religions often the first to see their freedoms encroached. And while I'm far from an expert on this, it's obvious that traditional understanding of women and their roles are often to blame. And so it's little surprise that Sheila faced these criticisms far more than her brother or of any other member of the family. The church and Christianity were a large part of the Bamba's lives, and this was reflected in the lives of the children. Having joined St Nicholas Church in nearby Tolshunt Darcy, the church where the Bambas are now buried, the children were enrolled in Sunday school. As a child, I also attended Sunday school, but this was mostly my own decision, and it was never something that was forced upon me in any which way. And when I left the church, I certainly wasn't expected to continue my religious education. The Bamba children, however, were, and when they returned home from Sunday school, the studies were pursued further. At mealtimes, grace was read, and the children were expected to pray at regular intervals, with bedtime stories usually compromising more stories from the Bible. Unsurprisingly, both children attended the local Church of England primary school. According to those who also attended, Sheila was regarded as a much-loved and popular pupil, while Jeremy struggled to fit in. After this, both siblings were moved to Malden Court, a private school a few miles away, where it suggested that Jeremy started to come into his own. Here, he was able to make friends, and he was said to have been naturally talented with science and maths. Yet within the farm, it suggested that discipline became a problem for June Neville, with neither of them finding it easy to discipline their children. With David Bowflower telling Carolyn Lee that June and Neville weren't strong disciplinarians, very kind, loving people, but I don't think they were strong enough on their children. They did everything they could from a financial point of view. Sometimes children need more. 
When I read this initially during my research, I couldn't help but think of the famed affluenza case. And I started to wonder what impact, if any, financial indulgence might actually have on young people. For those unfamiliar with the case, I'm referring to the case of Ethan Couch. And I'll attach a link below for those curious to learn more. In 2013, Ethan Couch killed four people and injured nine others when he drove his car under the influence into an unsuspecting crowd of people. The police quickly discovered a dangerous pattern of behaviour that the teen had been exhibiting for many years and at the point when the tragedy took place, Ethan was 16 years old but he was effectively living an independent life. His parents had recently moved into a new mansion and had left Couch unattended for weeks on end in their former property, allowing him to drink and drive despite past warnings. At his trial, his defence alleged that he was simply too spoiled to know right from wrong, a defence that remains as ludicrous now as it was at the time. After all, a 16-year-old knows right from wrong, and him fleeing the crash surely suggests this even further. But here's the thing, while it doesn't excuse what a person does, a lack of boundaries might suggest that something else is bubbling under the surface. A sense of entitlement that comes from being given everything with faults and failings often overlooked, and it no doubts warrant further investigation and research. Another recent case also had elements of this, the Murdoch family. The standards which June carried for her children eventually carried over into their adulthood, and her religious beliefs massively influenced what she expected of her children. For Jeremy, that meant inheriting the farm, a role for which he was to be primed and trained from a young age. It was expected that he would marry a local girl in the local church and that together they would eventually manage White House Farm. For Sheila, the fate was much the same, with it being expected that she would attend finishing school before marrying a local boy. Neither of which being how things unfolded, something which was said to have been a great stress for June Bamba. And yet, for all her supposed disappointment in her children, June seemed to have a great love for them also, leaving a beautiful letter alongside her will for whoever was left behind. It was addressed to all the family, but obviously it was to Jeremy whom it was given. A snippet of it read as follows. If anything happens to me and I have to leave you, I write this to tell you of my love for you and to thank you for all that you have given me. Much of what we know about Sheila comes from Colin Caffell, Sheila's ex-husband, whom she remained close to despite the fact their relationship had ended. If you haven't read Colin's book, In Search of a Rainbow's End, I urge you to do so, because it's a beautiful account of his story, and he writes with a warmth that most people would struggle with given the circumstances. It's honestly one of the most beautifully written books that I've ever read, because while it's about grief, it's absolutely about love. Something that Colin seems to possess in abundance, despite the tragedies that have happened within his life. There's an emotional intelligence that Colin seems to possess, and his attitude is beautiful. In the years and months following the murders, Colin was heavily critical of June, and since discovering the truth about the events that night, he wonders about the role June's beliefs had on both the children. After all, they were not biologically related, and yet both June and Sheila were to suffer from similar mental health conditions the commonality being the environment in which both developed. A commonality between Sheila and Jeremy is that both were said to be devastated by their parents' decision to eventually send them both to boarding school, with Sheila's being sent off coming first. It happened in 1968, just after the death of Neville's sister, and strangely, it happened in the middle of the school year. Contrary to what Bamba did allege at one point during his police questioning, there's no evidence to suggest that Sheila was expelled from this school. 
but we might never know the truth behind this sudden change. Regardless of the why or the hows, in 1968, Sheila was sent away. Sheila had been sent to Moira House in Eastbourne, a beautiful red brick building that has since been closed down, but she hated it from the get-go. She missed being near to her family and particularly missed her pets. In a theme that is consistent with both Bamba children, the move created huge feelings of rejection, struggling to fit in with other children and feeling abandoned by her parents. In his book, Colin Caffell recounts the deep sense of rejection that Sheila was to experience from this. Quote, She spoke of suffering terrible feelings of rejection at the time, not only her parents, but also by most of the girls at the school. Over the next two years, Sheila continued to apply pressure on her parents, begging and pleading with them to bring her home. But for the first two years, it failed to work, until 1970 when they finally relented, allowing her to change school. The decision was finally made to move her to Old Hall School in Norfolk. She loved it and found herself a group of friends who still remember her fondly. One of these friends, Jane Davis, later wrote a letter to Colin, telling him about her experience with Sheila. Quote, There was nothing except kindness and fun in BAMS. She was one of the few people I knew who never showed any signs of malice. It was said that Sheila's only real downfall at school was her lack of confidence, and the many teachers believed that this was the primary reason why she failed to excel. While Jeremy Bamba might have been wrong about Sheila being expelled from her first school, he was partly right about the second one, because eventually Sheila was expelled from Old Hall, but it was on the very last day of term and alongside the rest of her class. Their crime, they destroyed their school uniforms. Leaving with little to no idea of what she wanted to do, Sheila was clear on one goal, and that was her determination to leave the farm. Filled with a want to escape and a desire for adventure, Sheila set her sights on the big, bold lights of London. Initially, June was reluctant to let her daughter go, appreciating that Sheila was beautiful and fearful of the perceived immortality that London had to offer. But in the end, having said to have sought guidance from God, June agreed. In September 1974, Sheila began a two-year course at St. Godric's in Hampstead, but she never finished, withdrawing in the March of 1975. But while her academic career had ended with little progress having been made, she had made a strong group of friends with whom she regularly visited the Three Horseshoes on Heath Street. It was there that she met her future husband and the eventual father of her twins, Colin Caffell, a moment that he captures perfectly in his book. Quote, For me, it was love at first sight. In that enchanted moment, across a smoke-filled Hampstead pub, I had found my fairy tale princess. In the months following this and her eventual withdrawal from the course, Sheila struggled to settle, dabbling in hairdressing before choosing to pursue modelling, a career that she believed would set her up for life. With her parents' help, Sheila was able to create a portfolio, with one of the shots ironically involving a gun. The story which Caroline Lee tells in her book, the shot in question was taken by Ronald Crowe, an Essex photographer who knew the Edens. He recounted how awkward Sheila was with the weapon, seeming to have no idea how to even hold it. Determined to help her daughter, June eventually paid for a modelling course at the Lucy Clayton School, but as time passed, she did start to become concerned about this prospect. The 1970s was the beginning of a change in culture and relationships, with societal changes said to have weighed heavily on the religious June. She'd been left disappointed with her daughter's choice in partner and was worried about the wider world. While Sheila fell quickly in love with Colin, the Bambas weren't so keen. And later, Jeremy would tell Colin how the Bambas truly felt about their relationship. Quote, 
In Jeremy's opinion, his parents' attitude was all down to the fact that they had very little respect for me or my ideas and treated me like dirt, or at least thought of me in that context. I knew that I hadn't come up to their expectations of a son-in-law, but this still came as a bit of shock. He then went on to suggest that right from the start, I had always had a raw deal with his family. Over the next few years, Sheila attempted to make it as a model. A beautiful young woman who loved the London lifestyle, it was a career that she could have been built for. But for whatever reason, it simply wasn't meant to be. And she struggled to have any real impact. Again, I have to wonder if her lack of confidence played a role in her inability to make it as a model. After all, you have to be pretty confident for that kind of thing. Added to this was a change in her personal circumstances, as in 1975, shortly after graduating from her modelling course, Sheila and Colin fell pregnant. On the advocacy of June Bamber, Sheila sought an abortion, and while it's hard to know exactly, this does seem to be the moment things started to change for Sheila. Perhaps related to the fact that several of her friends reported that the decision was very much against her wishes. One thing does appear to be certain, and that is that this incident was said to be the beginning of a tragic obsession for Sheila. Following it, Sheila developed an obsession with having children, with pregnancy eventually becoming a source of great emotional trauma for her. Similarly, as it happened with June following her adoption of Sheila, having children would become a disastrous fixation and undoubtedly contributed to her later mental ill health. According to numerous sources, Sheila's wants, wills or best interests were often second to the dominating consideration and that was how other people would think of the Bambas. While her pregnancies were undoubtedly a huge factor in her life, another tale has become dominant in attempting to understand the later mental health battles that Sheila would be plagued by. In his book, Colin recounts a particular incident that he himself witnessed one which is now believed to have had a lasting and long-term implication on Sheila's mental health. The story starts just after Sheila's first pregnancy, the one that ended with an abortion. Just after this, Colin was invited to White House Farm so that he could be there for Sheila. Being very much the young 20-somethings that they were, they decided to sunbathe in the vast grounds of White House Farm. Quote, It was so hot in the shelter of the hedgerow that, having spread our blankets out, we decided to strip off completely and sunbathe naked. The couple were discovered by June Bamba, and her outrage was plain for anyone to see, with Colin describing her as wearing an expression of, quote, grim determination. June dragged Sheila off, and it wasn't until years later that Colin finally learned what June had said to her. In his book, Colin recounts finding it out. Quote, Some years later, I was to learn, in private, Mrs. Bamba had branded her the devil's child, a condemnation which, according to her psychiatrist's testimony at Jeremy's trial, struck very deeply and had a profound and devastating effect at the time. Some years later, I was to learn, in private, Mrs. Bamba had branded her the devil's child, a condemnation which, according to her psychiatrist's testimony at Jeremy's trial, struck very deeply and had a profound and devastating effect at the time Bams was most emotionally vulnerable and in need of reassurance. At this point in time, problems between Colin and Sheila were beginning to emerge, with the couple being plagued by bickering and arguments. Tensions would flare, and while Sheila doesn't seem to have knowingly hurt any of her loved ones, tempers were wearing wafer thin. 
She had, however, been known to damage items of Colin's pottery, with him also admitting himself that on one occasion, his reaction had caused Sheila a black eye. Regardless of this, the couple remained together, and in 1977, the pair fell pregnant a second time. This time, again on her parents' persuasion, she and Colin married in what was, by all accounts, a shotgun wedding. The parents had offered them a flat in London, with them arguing that it was in the best interest of the child. It seems likely that, in reality, it was more to do with perception and how others would view the Bambas and their own children. Since Colin and Sheila had engaged in sex before marriage, June refused to allow Sheila to marry in the local church, despite it being Sheila's wish, and instead her wedding was to be inside the local registry office. Additionally, June is said to have forbidden Sheila from wearing white, insisting that she wear cream instead, and very few people were invited. Again, on the advice of the Bambas. But this pregnancy was also to end in sadness, as shortly after the marriage, Sheila had a miscarriage. Again, Colin recounts this in his book. Quote, Sadly, within weeks of our marriage, Bams miscarried. Desperate to put it behind her, she accepted two months of gruelling work in Tokyo, which further crippled her emotionally. After much trauma and another miscarriage, she finally fell pregnant with twins. By then, unfortunately, our relationship had deteriorated to the level of mutual abuse and accusations. We no longer saw each other in the form of radiant, supernatural beings, but as ogre and witch. We were reduced to screaming at each other and eventually parted a few months after the boys were born. I still loved Bams dearly, but found it impossible to live with her any longer. There were even times we could have killed each other. Violence was just below the surface. One incident is recounted in Caroline Lee's book. Quote, On her 21st birthday at their flat in Hampstead, during the evening, Sheila noticed that her husband had disappeared with a young woman from his office. Colin returned two hours later, refusing to answer Sheila's frantic questions. When all the guests, except her parents and Jeremy, had gone, he tried to pretend nothing happened by ignoring all her questions and trying to get to sleep. In desperation, Sheila smashed her fist through the bedroom window. Colin was horrified, but too drunk to drive her to the nearest Royal Free Hospital. It fell to Jeremy to look after his distressed sister, who had gashed the back of her hand and needed stitches. Colin recalls that she would thrust scars under his nose to make him feel guilty. Sheila's abiding sense of betrayal was heightened by the incident. Three months after she miscarried, Sheila joined her father, brother and the extended family on a shooting holiday in Scotland. And while it was said to have been an annual event, Sheila is only believed to have attended on this one occasion. In the eventual trial of Jeremy Bamber, this trip to Scotland was to become a key source of contention, as there were numerous questions over whether Sheila had used a gun. Jeremy was adamant that she had, and eventually, David Boutflower would also agree that he had witnessed her fire a shotgun. Before their eventual breakup, and following the miscarriage, Colin and Sheila were attempting to make things work, despite the obvious issues that they were having, and eventually, Sheila was to fall pregnant with the twins. There were issues with the pregnancy from very early on, and Sheila was hospitalised on several occasions, eventually being hospitalised for the remainder of the pregnancy. It was during one of these days that Sheila found out something which was to devastate her. Colin was having an affair. According to my research, the affair started a few months before Sheila had found out that she was pregnant with the twins, and it started when Colin had begun a new job at a music magazine. The woman was a trainee nurse and he'd met her at a party. 
Sheila was said to have been devastated, but assumed it was a fling and that it would end quickly. Shortly after the affair began, Colin lost his job. Shortly after the affair began, Colin lost his job. And June Bamba took the decision to pay for Colin to have driving lessons. She wanted Sheila to have easy access to her and Neville, with Colin being able to drive, meaning that they could then visit easily. On the 22nd of June, 1979, the twins were born. A few weeks before their due date, and while the circumstances of their birth were far from ideal for the Bambas, the Bambas were said to have been delighted by the news. The Bambas were officially grandparents, and they doted on the new additions. Yet while Sheila and Colin were bonding with their beautiful baby boys, and the Bambas were pleased with their nephews, June Bamba's own mental health was rapidly declining, and in 1979 she was hospitalised. This time she was treated for major depression. The decline in her mental health was said to have been because of a number of external pressures, chief amongst them being that Neville's mother had come to live with them. Despite Colin Caffell clearly having issues with June Bamba's religious beliefs, he had a great deal of respect for how she dealt with the issues, and noted that he believed it had a huge impact on her. However, in his book, he also reflected how she chose to further lean on the church in those times. Quote, Rather than complain or attempt to spread the workload, she allowed it to all become part of the cross she had to bear. But others suffered the consequences. Although many would not consider it excessive, over the years, June had begun to preach her committed beliefs to all and sundry, especially her own family. The man who took charge of June's treatment, Dr. Hugh Cameron Ferguson, was eventually to become Sheila's doctor too, something that would likely be advised against today. At the time he was treating June, he'd been working at the hospital for four years and shared his observations about June Bamba to Caroline Lee. Quote, I found her very intelligent, self-contained and likeable. She had a kind of gravitas. Her husband was very level-headed and obviously doted to her. He told me it was a nasty depression she had, that she was deeply religious and how worried he was about her. While there, June received several more doses of electric shock therapy. On top of the obvious stress that June had felt from Neville's mother joining the household, it was said that June's distress also extended to her children's choices and that these had deeply affected her and that she'd found it hard to accept that they hadn't turned out as she herself would have wanted. In essence, June wanted Jeremy to be next in line to the farm and to take over at the point when Neville was no longer able to continue. But instead, her son had become obsessed with living a wealthy, carefree lifestyle and was said to have had aspirations of moving to London and opening a bar. While Sheila, on the other hand, had married Colin Caffell, a kindly but penniless art student, the opposite of the local village farmer June had hoped Sheila would marry. And yet, according to Dr Ferguson, her children were only mentioned briefly during her therapy sessions, suggesting that, much in the same way as he would with Sheila, external circumstances might have influenced but not caused her ongoing health concerns. June Bamba was eventually released from the Northampton Hospital just a few months later and was said to have been in a much better place. In what was to be an ironic and sad twist of fate, it was the hospital where Sheila was later to receive further treatment herself. Meanwhile, at this point in time, Sheila herself was beginning to spiral. On the 21st of December 1979, Sheila placed a call to Camden Social Services, begging them for help. She was worried that she was going to hurt the twins, but despite this, and having been assigned a care worker, Sheila was deemed to be no threat. It's a part of the story that Carl Ann Lee discusses in great detail in her book. Quote, 
The social workers assigned to Sheila were reminded of an exotic bird in a gilded cage. Despite being the most privileged client on their books, she was painfully lonely, with only her babies for interest and company on a day-to-day basis. At six months old, Nicholas and Daniel were peaky with heavy colds, but otherwise fine and related well to their mother. Sheila talked a great deal about how important it was to her to be fertile and about her relationship with June then going through a particularly difficult spell. Still seething and bewildered over the breakdown of her marriage, she seemed a complex young woman, prone to melodrama but fragile and warm, eager to be around other people. Colin, with his laid-back manner and liking for calm, had clearly been unable to cope with her emotional needs. Camden Social Services decided the main priority was to provide her with respite from the twins and the chance to find work. But Sheila also admitted to temper tantrums, in which she inflicted injuries on herself and deliberately provoked Colin. And sometimes she had hallucinations and feelings of paranoia. She asked to be referred for psychoanalysis. In August 1981, Sheila made the decision to quit her attempts at modelling and officially asked Penny Cotton to remove her from the agency. According to Caroline Lee, Penny was somewhat disappointed, feeling that Sheila could have become a fantastic model. Was it not for the children? She felt that since Sheila had become a mother, she had rightly been putting her children first and that as a result, she no longer had time for anything else. Yet for Sheila, the matter was much deeper and she became convinced that it was her appearance that had foiled her modelling attempts. As a result, Sheila requested that her GP arrange a breast augmentation for her, and shortly after, she underwent surgery. At around the same time that Sheila was being removed from the agency's books, Camden Social Services were raising concerns about Sheila's care of the boys. According to Caroline Lee's research, a health worker had expressed concerns when Daniel presented with scalds on his cheek, knee and stomach, while also having a year infection. The health worker's concerns laid primarily in how Sheila had handled the situation, anxious that she was not quick enough to act, and didn't seek medical assistance until it was suggested to her. The social services found the injuries were undoubtedly accidental and that the health worker was wrong about Sheila's decision to seek medical care. She had actually taken Daniel to the hospital. At this point in time, Sheila had no confirmed mental health concerns and her only form of medication was the sedation that she was taking to sleep in the evening. At this point, Colin also became concerned about Sheila's care of the boys, but in the end, it was decided that Sheila would remain the primary carer although there was a marked shift in how Sheila was behaving at this point. The twins themselves were growing into beautiful young children, with them said to have been loving and lovely young boys. They were said to have been incredibly unique and independent, adding joy to the lives of anyone who happened to know them. A picture that Colin paints beautifully in his book, quote, I felt a bit like the eccentric inventor Caraticus Potts, the main character in the film Chitty Chitty Bang Bang with his two children. Like them, we didn't have much money to spend, but we were all well, had an abundance of love and laughter, and most of all, each other. The younger of the two, Nicholas, loved embodying his younger role, always acting like the younger sibling, despite only being a few minutes younger. They were both said to have been sensitive souls, but each was different with their own thoughts and their own interests. The older of the two, Daniel, was said to have been vastly more serious, but loved deeply and was able to communicate his feelings with ease. He always showed an understanding and awareness of how other people felt, taking the care to understand people's struggles. He loved football and he-man, welcoming friendships with other young boys. 
On the other hand, Nicholas showed a natural interest in girls and had a love of all things nature and flora. He loved being outdoors and enjoyed looking at flowers and butterflies. He was smaller than his brother, but full of laughter and wanted to make sure everyone knew him and his brother apart. Something that was made easier by the fact that Nicholas had a slight scar on his cheek, having once fallen over a coffee table. Much like the lives of their mother and uncle, the twins' lives were also to become dominated by their grandparents. And as the children grew up, June's religious belief became a staple of their upbringing. Something that was to be a huge concern for Colin Gaffell. In fact, just a few weeks before their final visit to White House Farm, Colin witnessed something that he found deeply concerning. The twins had drawn a series of images that revolved around their grandmother and the farm, with each image being slightly darker than the one before it. In one image, the house is on fire, and in another, a monster-like human can be seen. A figure that the twins claimed was their grandmother, because she used to make them pray, even though they didn't want to. In the years following the murders, Colin has had the drawings examined by numerous child psychologists, and the conclusions were staggering. They believed that the twins knew that they were going to die. It's worth grabbing a copy of Colin's book in search of Rainbow's End for numerous reasons, but also because it contains images of some of these artwork. In the years following the murders, Colin would often wonder about the long-term implications that June's religious beliefs had on Sheila and the obsession that she later seemed to have towards religion herself. Quote, I suspect this was a major contributing factor in not only Bams' tragic illness, but her own earlier breakdown. Like my own family, anger and feelings were never openly expressed by Neville and June, with the inevitable result that the children were like a box of firecrackers waiting to explode at the slightest provocation. In 1983, Sheila and Colin divorced, with her mental health said to have been a major part of the decision. It also meant that Colin was made designated caregiver. In 2020, in promotion of the drama that was written about the case, based on a mixture of Colin and Carol's book, Colin admitted that despite his decision, he still loved Sheila. Quote, Bams had never been an easy person to live with, but now her emotional condition had become increasingly erratic. Away from June, I began to spend more time with Bams, developing a supportive friendship in the hope of helping her heal, but it seemed a losing battle. No matter how much all the medication brought about improvement, her condition always deteriorated rapidly on visiting White House Farm, or after contact with her direct family, especially her mother. Shortly after the divorce, the Bambas purchased Sheila a beautiful townhouse in Maida Vale in Chelsea, and in many ways, it marked a turning point for Sheila. In her new home in her beloved city, Sheila was able to socialise and started to make a new set of friends. Sadly, this wasn't to last very long. Shortly after moving to the area, Sheila and the twins briefly became involved with Westminster Social Services. But following a successful evaluation of Sheila's care, the case was closed in December 1982. It was the same month that the twins began attending a new nursery in St. John's Wood, where they were regarded to be content and well-cared-for children. Sadly for Sheila, things were beginning to spiral with an incident with Nicholas in May 1983 proving to be a turning point. Following a visit to White House Farm, Sheila had returned to London by train, opting to take a taxi from the station to her home. When the taxi came to a stop, Nicholas tumbled out, resulting in a minor injury to his head. While Sheila panicked and was said to have been filled with guilt, the injury itself was only minor. 
Immediately after the incident, Nicholas was examined at Paddington Green Children's Hospital, where a social worker was contacted. It wasn't personal to Sheila or the situation, it was just standard practice at the time. The police were also contacted, but it was noted that there was no suggestion that the accident was anything but non-judgmental. According to Caroline Lee, when the social worker arrived, she found Sheila at Nicholas's bedside. She noted that Sheila appeared to be a little depressed and welcomed the opportunity to have a conversation. In her book, Caroline Lee recounted what Sheila is alleged to have told a friend about the incident afterwards. Quote, Sheila told a friend that during her visit to the farm prior to the accident, her mother's desire to impose religion on the twins had led to a furious argument. The boys were frightened and Sheila had insisted they leave. In a taxi from the train station, she had been in a ferment and wasn't concentrating on the children, only her mother's religious rantings. While her mental health had been deteriorating for many months, the divorce and Nicholas's accident were seen as catalysts that led to Sheila's eventual hospitalisation. Friends and family had noticed that Sheila was becoming obsessed with notions of good and evil, seeming to be concerned with her and the twins' morality. It's around the same time that she began to hear voices, telling various people that she was intermittently various figures of good. Eventually, Sheila sought the help of her GP, who referred her to the Royal Free Hospital Psychiatric Outpatients Clinic. But Neville and June had other ideas. They insisted that Sheila should be referred to Dr Ferguson instead. On the 2nd of August, Sheila visited him, and he recalled to Caroline Lee that Sheila was very agitated and psychotic, and overvalued ideas that she accepted as the truth. Quote, she had been in a state of acute psychosis for at least a fortnight and depressed and unconfident for the previous 18 months, with an increasing sensitivity about other people. He conferred with her parents before admitting her to the hospital. They were quite clear that she had not committed any acts of violence, but they were of course extremely worried about her. On the 4th of August 1983, a little over a year since June had been discharged, Sheila entered St Andrews. She was accommodated in Isham House, overlooking the golf course. It was a modern block acting as the admissions area and forming one of two acute units dealing with such disorders as depression, alcoholism and eating problems. Over the course of her treatment, Sheila began to reveal more and more about her struggles, with Dr Ferguson eventually concluding that Sheila's relationship with June had played a big factor in her spiral. He points out to Caroline Lee that he is in no way blaming June for Sheila's mental health condition, pointing out that Sheila's schizophrenia made her predisposed to such delusions anyway, stating that her delusions were probably shaped but not caused by June's own religious beliefs. Sheila's initial diagnosis of schizoaffective disorder was changed, and Sheila was clinically diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. In his view, Sheila's obsession with good and evil went back to the incident when June had called Sheila the devil's child. Her fixation on herself as a source of evil was central to much of what she was feeling, and she believed that she was able to create evil in other people, with the source of her concerns tending to be her twins. In particular, she was concerned that her ability to create evil would force her sons to have sex with her or to induce violence. Again, according to Caroline Lee, quote, In the fortnight prior to her hospital admission, Sheila's delusions became more vivid and real. She thought her sons would seduce her and saw evil in both. She especially feared that Nicholas was becoming a woman hater and potential murderer. The matter was also discussed in court, with Dr. Ferguson confirming that, quote, 
I found that Sheila had bizarre delusions about possession by the devil and complex ideas about having sex with her twin sons. In particular, she thought Nicholas was a woman hater and a potential murderer. Contextually, it's worth pointing out that all of this coincided with the 1980s satanic panic episode, whereby numerous crimes were incorrectly believed to have been the result of devil worship. However, while the twins and the concept of good and evil were at the forefront of her delusions, her disturbed thinking was regarded as much wider. Like many with paranoid delusions, Sheila also believed that other people were watching her, that she was being tracked and that her thoughts could be read by others. And yet in no time did Sheila ever give Dr. Ferguson the impression that she was violent or that her tendencies were ever violent towards anyone else. In fact, the only thoughts of violence that she had ever admitted to were to herself and herself alone. She was suicidal, not homicidal, and there's obviously a massive difference. Dr. Ferguson would later record that whilst in 1983 she expressed fears of harming or doing harm to her children, that fear didn't seem to reoccur. Quote, I find it difficult to conceptualise her harming her children or her father, but I could conceive of her harming her mother or herself. Of course, I cannot state categorically that she was incapable of harming her family. This is contrary to what Jeremy told the police and what he said at his eventual trial, with him implying that he had seen Sheila being violent towards the twins. These allegations cannot be entirely refuted, but very little other evidence exists to support the idea that there was any violence towards the twins. And social services never found any evidence of violence on the several occasions in which they were involved. Throughout my research and re-reading of old accounts about the White House farm murders, there is one clear picture that emerges, and that was while Sheila and June had a difficult relationship, Neville was the apple of Sheila's eye. Dr. Ferguson told Caroline Lee that he believed Neville was vital to Sheila's recovery. Quote, Dr. Ferguson referred to him in his notes as her mentor, providing a very secure, caring and strong support. Today he reflects, I use the word mentor in relation to her father, but it wasn't the appropriate word really. He was a strength and shield. Sheila really loved him and had the best of feelings that one has towards another human being. He was everything he could have been to her, kind, fatherly, protective. For Dr. Ferguson, there was one key reason why June's beliefs were so important to Sheila, and that was that she craved acceptance from her mother. It's the key reason why tension existed between June and Sheila, both before and after her mental concerns. In the years since the murders, Jeremy has alleged that Sheila had electroshock therapy, but it's a claim that Dr. Ferguson refutes. Unlike June, the basis of Sheila's treatment was medication, with the only commonality between the two being that of talking therapy. On the 10th of September 1983, Sheila was discharged, with Dr. Ferguson feeling confident that Sheila could live a healthy life. At the time, he was under the impression that she had recovered, but has since reflected that it might not have been as clear-cut. Again, Caroline Lee, quote, Today you reflect that Sheila made a partial recovery upon leaving St Andrews. She was not deluded or hallucinating. She was discharged to go home with her parents for a few weeks before returning to London. She needed a place of safety, which I think the farm was, albeit not somewhere where she could have lived permanently. Sheila knew her parents cared about her, and when she was well, she was truly loved. She had a kind of naivety, a sweetness of spirit. Deep down, she was somewhat immature, although, of course, she was still very young anyway. While Sheila was in hospital, the wider family were unaware of her health concerns, and it was seemingly hidden from the family. 
The world has come on a lot since the 1980s, but even to this day, there remains a stigma around mental health, particularly those of a serious nature that require such forms of treatment. The Bambas had a local public life and public perception mattered to them. It was around this time that conversations regarding Sheila's living situation are said to have begun being discussed, with the Bambas suggesting that Sheila should come live closer to home. Yet despite their insistence, Sheila declined, choosing to stay in London. Over the next few months, Sheila's condition seemed to plateau, and she found herself making friends with some of the women whose children also attended the same nursery. At this point in time, Sheila also had a new boyfriend, having formed a relationship with Freddie, an older married man, It's around this time that Sheila began to experiment with cannabis, using it intermittently. And Caroline Lee records that she also began missing appointments with Dr. Ferguson, something that was a worry for him. On the rare occasion when he did see her, he recommended that she stop using recreational drugs. In his view, it could worsen her symptoms and condition. He felt much the same way when she later admitted to having used cocaine. During this time, he also found that Sheila had made both progress and regression in her treatment. And while he felt pleased that Sheila seemed to have been looking for and eventually found a job, he did have numerous concerns. For one thing, she seemed to be fixated on pregnancy again and seemed to be beginning to hear voices. In early 1985, Sheila was offered the opportunity to take part in a tasteful nude photo shoot, but was horrified by the end result. The images were far worse than she had ever imagined and in the end, she demanded the photos be handed over to her. She hid them away only for Jeremy to later find them in his search for valuables within her flat. Despite almost everyone else disagreeing with the comments Jeremy made about his sister and how she treated the twins, Freddie was eventually to agree with Jeremy to an extent, saying that Sheila could and had been violent. In fact, he told the police that Sheila possessed a quick and violent temper. There's one infamous story about Sheila that also involves her new love interest. According to Freddie, he was alone with Sheila and her maid of fell flat when she suddenly became hysterical. He claims that Sheila became violent, telling him that the phone was bugged and becoming visibly distressed. At this point, Sheila tried to call her doctor, but called Colin's mother in error. Concerned for Sheila, Colin's mother was quick to come to the apartment to help. Following a phone call to the on-call doctor, a prescription was offered, and Freddie offered to collect it, leaving Colin's mother and Sheila alone. According to Freddie, when he returned, Colin's mother had left, but that before doing so, Sheila had become violent towards her. He claims that the entire incident left him incredibly concerned about Sheila's behaviour. It's worth pointing out that there are two versions of this story, with Colin having an altogether different one to Freddie. He disputes that there was ever any violence towards his mother. It was now March 1985, and within 48 hours of this incident, Sheila had been hospitalised for a second time, with Colin made primary carer of the twins. It was a decision that hadn't been reversed before the murders, and so at the time they died, the twins were in Colin's care. According to Colin, this didn't change Sheila's relationship with the boys. Quote, a second breakdown in March 1985 precipitated in the boys coming to live with me full time. Having said that, Bams had a marvellous relationship with them and was always very caring in the most instinctive way. A close friend of hers once described her as more like a lioness with her cubs, playful. Her greatest pressures were not from motherhood itself, but from those outside that sacred bond with her sons. As with before, Sheila was experiencing religious-based delusions, believing that she was communicating with God and that her boyfriend of the time, Freddie, was the devil. 
Four weeks after her admission, Sheila was discharged a second time with prescriptions for numerous drugs to help her manage her symptoms. Sheila had been prescribed both haloperidiol and anaphranal. Haloperidiol is an antipsychotic medication that is used to treat the symptoms of schizophrenia, while anaphranal is used to treat recurring obsessive thoughts. In the weeks prior to the murders, Sheila had sought further advice in relation to her medication, as she believed that she was suffering from the severe side effects of her haloperidial dosage. It said that it was making her severely lethargic, and she was also having issues sleeping. It's worth pointing out here that Sheila was on a massive dosage, with her receiving 200 milligrams of iron injection every month, that being compared to the standard 25 to 75 that most patients receive nowadays. The doctor agreed to decrease Sheila's dosage, cutting it to 100 milligrams, 50% of the original. In the years since, some have criticised the reduction, suggesting that it should have only been reduced slightly in the first instance. Sheila had also been suffering from nausea, and as well as seeing her haloperidial dosage halved, she was also prescribed a third medication to help with those symptoms. For Jeremy's defenders, this reduction could be partly to blame for what they say eventually happened. And they argue that the reduction in her dosage might have destabilised her, meaning that she was far more susceptible to her symptoms. Additionally, Sheila's last dosage was on the 11th of July, meaning that her dosage might have been waning. Those who'd seen Sheila in the days before the murders reported that she seemed somewhat withdrawn and tired, making me question how effective the reduction had even been. What happens next is part of history. Tragedy tends to mean that only the most extreme parts of human experience are recorded. It's the reason why we use the phrase, I could never have guessed, as we tend to assume that the version of a person that we see is the only version there is, when in reality we each have various versions of ourselves, with our colleagues seeing a different side of us to our family and so on. The White House farm murders forced those close to the Bambas to reconsider the people that they thought they once knew, with every incident now cast into a different light. And for the Bambas, who had a history of keeping things hidden, this was perhaps even more pronounced. For the short time that Sheila was considered the perpetrator, her name was dragged through the mud, forcing her and her family to suffer even in death. All manner of allegations were thrown at her, with Jeremy himself having even suggested to police that Sheila had been involved in various nefarious activities. From Collins' book, quote, for weeks to come, the tabloids gorged themselves on salacious stories about Hellraiser Bambi, the girl with made eyes, becoming a top model with a wild social life that resulted in 40,000 drug debt, linking her to a string of country house burglaries. For Colin, in the months after the realisation that Jeremy was likely to blame, it was his mission to correct the record about his former wife, to clear Sheila's name, to reclaim her dignity and humanity. The Bambas and the Cafels had two separate funerals, each reflective of the lives they were to commemorate. The twins' funeral was a colourful celebration of life, while the Bambas was much more traditional. The Bambas, Neville and June, are buried in one grave within the grounds of the church that they loved so greatly. A simple, short headstone marks the spot where they lay. In fact, I visited the site in September of 2021. Based on the images that I've seen on Google, I knew that the grave sat up against the church's border, that there was a hedge directly behind it. But I failed to realise that it was right at the front of the church, right to the side of the car park. The gravestone itself is short and small, and I failed to initially notice it because of the large plant that sat right in front of it. I'd noticed the plant itself, 
but for me, it took a moment to notice that it was indeed the grave of the Bambers. The message on the grave is poignant and touching, short but powerful in its own way. It reads, In loving memory of R. Neville and June Bamber, both died 61 years, tragically taken from us, 7th of August 1985, forever with the Lord. The plant itself was large, pink and almost the size of the gravestone. It was clearly new, presumably placed there to reflect the anniversary of their passing, which would have been just one month prior. Next to the grave, just to the right, was a white candle. It had been burned out, but it had been left there. Over the past 10 years, the gravesite itself has been the source of some controversy, particularly in terms of Jeremy Bamber and his defenders. According to the campaign team, they are the only ones who currently tend to the grave, an accusation that they outline on their website, but it's something I can't prove nor refute. But not all relatives feel the need to visit their loved ones' graves. For some people, that's simply not how they mourn. And given that we know members of the campaign team tend to the grave, is it surprising that perhaps some of the family don't also want to visit there? The campaign's supposed care of the grave as opposed to the family means very little, especially when you consider that it could be used for appearances. The current vicar, Lizzie Armour, did advise me that the grave is very well cared for and that there are a large number of people who visit regularly. However, she was unaware of who they are or what their connection to the Bambas is. Inside the church itself, which is beautiful and well cared for, is a wooden plaque which was installed following the Bamba's deaths. It dedicates the Black Lantern just outside the church to both the Bambas. The plaque is simple with the provider's name unknown. It reads, The lantern outside the porch was given in memory of Neville and June Bamba, former church wardens, died 1985. When I visited, there were also two decorations placed alongside the plaque, with two palm crosses having been inserted behind, one on each side, one for each of the Bambas. Across the middle of the cross, the horizontal line, were the names of each of the Bambas, the one on the left being for June and the one on the right being for Neville. Along the vertical part of the cross was a message, we will never forget you. Given that there is no information on the campaign team's website regarding this, I'm assuming that they weren't the ones who placed it. And to me, the message also sounds much too personal. And while I could not prove it, I suspect that this was a family member. The crosses didn't look particularly worn, and they were, of course, a church product. There's a chance that they've come from within that church itself. In addition, in 2013, his parents' grave was the centre of an outburst of anger when the campaign team sent one of their former leaders to the gravesite. Supposedly, on Jeremy's behalf, Trudy Benjamin read a letter from Bamber at the gravesite. The video is widely available online. It is a strange and surreal one, with Jeremy's alleged letter to his parents mostly being much about himself. He praises his parents' wartime experiences, using that as a teachable moment about bravery, a skill which he possesses in abundance, apparently. Genuine sadness and love seem to be missing from the entire scene. And call me cynical, but the fact that it's been filmed entirely detracts from its sincerity. In fact, the campaign's entire treatment of the subject detracts from the supposed sentiment and starts to feel like nothing more than virtue signalling on their behalf. After all, that letter could have just as well been read without it needed to be recorded. But it was, and the video was widely shared online. When you think about the circumstances, it's pretty chilling. It's worth remembering that the grave only contains the ashes of Neville and June, as they were cremated, allegedly despite it having been against their wishes. 
Despite her funeral being at the same time as her parents, Sheila was eventually interned with the twins. In the centre of London sits Highgate Cemetery, the British equivalent of Hollywood Forever. It's a haunting and beautiful place, with some of London's most famous buried amongst the perfect normal, some having passed from age and ill health, while others bearing their own tragedy. It's the resting place of communist writer Karl Marx, but also contains the grave of singer George Michael. But buried amongst them are the Cafal twins, as well as the ashes of their mother, Sheila. While Sheila's official funeral took place in Tolson Darcy alongside her parents, Colin was left devastated by the ceremony, angry at how Sheila's name was treated and upset that the twins weren't even mentioned, which led to him incorporating Sheila into the twins' celebratory funeral, with Sheila's ashes having been handed over to him by Jeremy. Colin makes it clear in his book that the choice of cemetery was somewhat of a happy coincidence. He initially sought out other resting places, but due to his specific needs, nowhere else would comply. Colin wanted the twins to be buried together, in their pyjamas, facing each other with their thumbs in their mouths, giving the perception that they'd simply fallen to sleep. It was Highgate Cemetery who eventually accepted this request, and the twins with Sheila were eventually interned there. In his book, Colin describes his desire to have a ceramic grave marker made for his lost family, with it being another reason why Highgate seems such a suitable resting place. He drew inspiration from the idea of the twins' favourite book, The Magic Faraway Tree by Enid Blyton. After all, anyone who's been there can tell you, Highgate has some of the most interesting and curious grave markers in the world. Quote, it was then that I knew I had to use my skills as a potter to create my own ceramic memorial, a replica of the tree in all its detail. The only unusual feature might be a small foot vanishing up the ladder into the clouds. A simple inscription would read, and they went up the ladder at the top of the faraway tree with Silky Moonface and the old saucepan man. Unfortunately, for reasons unknown, it seems that this wish was left unfulfilled, as there's nothing marking the grave today. Via a grave search, I was able to identify where the twins are buried, and earlier this year I visited the gravesite. Sadly, the cross that Carol Ann Lee records in her book has long since gone, and there is nothing to mark the final resting place today. And with that, we reach the end of the episode. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast and the effort that has been put into it, please be sure to leave a review and subscribe for all future episodes. To ensure that you never miss another episode, please subscribe and follow all the social media accounts linked below. To support this podcast and access even more content, make sure you check out the Patreon. For further information on myself, the podcast, or Voices for Change, make sure that you check out the links below.